This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello. Here we are once more on our journey through Namka Pell's text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. We've been talking about taking adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment, which basically means finding whatever benefit we can in bad situations. Traditionally in Tibetan Buddhism, we practice Tonglen, the method of taking on others' suffering and giving them our happiness to give meaning to situations involving suffering. By accepting our suffering and in our mind adding all others' suffering as well, we can encourage our mind to expand and become more like the mind of the Buddha. Last week, we talked about using bad circumstances to find meaning and also understanding. In Lauren Isley's story, The Star Thrower, the main protagonist starts out emotionally crippled, pitiless and unable to relate at all with his own or others' suffering. The story goes, It began, if I may borrow the expression from a Buddhist sage, with the skull and the eye. I was the skull. I was the inhumanly stripped skeleton without voice, without hope, wandering alone upon the shores of the world. I was devoid of pity because pity implies hope. There was in this desiccated skull only an eye, like a pharos light, a beacon, a search beam, revolving endlessly in sunless noonday or black night. Ideas like swarms of insects rose to the beam, but the light consumed them. Upon that shore, meaning had ceased. There were only the dead skull and the revolving eye. With such an eye, some have said, science looks upon the world. I do not know. I know only that I was the skull of emptiness and the endlessly revolving light without pity. Now, how many of us are like that? Without feeling for those who share this life with us and practically dead inside. We only see desolation and death and prey endlessly on those weaker than us, like Isley's competitive collectors of living seashells and starfish on a seashore described thus. Along the strip of wet sand that marks the ebbing and flowing of the tide, death walks hugely and in many forms. Even the torn fragments of green sponge yield bits of scrambling life, striving to return to the great mother that has nourished and protected them. In the end, the sea rejects its offspring. They cannot fight their way home through the surf, which casts them repeatedly back upon the shore. The tiny breathing pores of starfish are stuffed with sand. The rising sun shrivels the mucilaginous bodies of the unprotected. The sea beach and its endless war are soundless. Nothing screams but the gulls. In the night, particularly in the tourist season or during great storms, one can observe another vulturine activity. One can see in the hour before dawn on the ebb tide electric torches bobbing like fireflies along the beach. It is the sign of the professional shellers seeking to outrun and anticipate their less aggressive neighbours. A kind of greedy madness sweeps over the competing collectors. After a storm, one can see them hurrying along with bundles of gathered starfish, or toppling and overburdened, clutching bags of living shells 
whose hidden occupants will be slowly cooked and dissolved in the outdoor kettles provided by the resort hotels for the cleaning of specimens. In this environment, which seems to confirm the writer's own deathly outlook, he comes across a man at the end of a great rainbow, picking up living starfish and casting them back into the sea one by one. This action of compassion and love brings an epiphany, a cosmic transformation, and he awakens into a realization of the suffering he sees around him. Even though he sees humans in terms of desolation, he too becomes a star thrower, rising in the morning to fling starfish one by one back into the sea so that they may live. I picked up a star whose tube fish ventured timidly among my fingers, while, like a true star, it cried soundlessly for life. I saw it with an unaccustomed clarity and cast far out. With it, I flung myself as forefeet, for the first time into some unknown dimension of existence. From Darwin's tangled bank of unceasing struggle, selfishness and death, had arisen incomprehensibly the thrower who loved not man, but life. It was the subtle cleft in nature before which biological thinking had faltered. In the night, the gas flames under the shelling kettles would continue to glow. I set my clock accordingly. Tomorrow I would walk in the storm. I would walk against the shell collectors in the flames. I would walk remembering Bacon's forgotten words for the uses of life. I would walk with the knowledge of the discontinuities of the unexpected universe. I would walk knowing of the rift revealed by the thrower, a hint that there looms inexplicably in nature something above the role men give her. I knew it from the man at the foot of the rainbow, the starfish thrower on the beaches of Costabel. Through rising above our own desolation, our pain, to touch and take the pain from others, we too can become not only starfish throwers, but in truth star throwers. The natural becomes cosmic. But this will only happen if we do not allow ourselves to become trapped in our own pain, intensely loyal to our own suffering. As Namka Pell writes, we should take lightly every mental or physical difficulty that befalls us, be it great, moderate or slight. Whatever the circumstances, in happy times or hard times, whether we are at home or in a foreign country, in a village or a monastery, in the company of humans or non-human friends. We should think of the many kinds of sentient beings in the boundless universe afflicted with similar troubles and make prayers that our own sufferings may serve as a substitute for theirs and that they may be parted from all misery. Considering how wonderful it is to have fulfilled the purpose of our practice of compassion by taking on the suffering of others, we should sincerely rejoice. So now, before we continue, let's think about motivation as we usually do. If possible, thinking that this program will become the cause for our enlightenment, so that we can become of the greatest benefit, not only to ourselves, but also to all others. Thank you. Namkarpel's text continues with the subheading Taking Adverse Circumstances into the Path by relying on the excellent practices of accumulation and purification. He quotes the seven points of mind training with this. 
The supreme method is accompanied by the four practices. Now these four practices are accumulation of merit, purification of negativity, making offerings to evil spirits, and making offerings to spiritual protectors and seeking their help. He comments on the first, the accumulation of merit, like this. If you dislike suffering and wish for peace, thinking that it is easy to accumulate small, medium and large virtues in relation to the higher and lower fields of merit, do it in the company with all sentient beings. He quotes something titled, The Prayer of the Meditator Vidyajvala, which I've never come across before, and which says, Whatever is meant for my purpose, happiness or suffering, good or bad, may I accept it all. His Holiness the Dalai Lama comments on this thus, The first action is to build up further positive force. No matter what difficult negative circumstances arise, this inspires us to build up more positive potentials so that neither we nor anyone else will have to experience such difficult circumstances. We make offerings upward towards the Buddhas and the enlightened beings and downward toward all limited beings, giving to them whatever extent we are capable. In this way, we build up further positive force. So this first action for transforming negative circumstances into positive ones is to have them inspire us to do something positive. So basically, this means that we need positive potential to experience happiness and well-being. Such experiences rely on causes. They don't come out of nowhere. If we're in a good position now, it is because we created the causes in the past. And if we want these good experiences again in the future, we must create the causes now. Our experience of difficult times also has its causes. So, if we don't want to go through such experiences again, we must not create the causes, but instead create positive causes. And how do we do this? The text recommends making offerings to the higher field of merit, that is the Buddhas and the other enlightened beings, and the lower field of merit, and that is beings like humans, animals, and so on. His Holiness says we should make offerings to these two fields of merit according to how well we are equipped to make offerings. A king with great stores of wealth can, of course, make very extensive offerings, but a beggar might only be able to make very frugal offerings. Still, depending on the mind making the offerings, the beggar may accumulate more merit than the king. This is shown in one famous story about a king who invited the Buddha and his many monks to a feast in their honor. While everybody was eating the delicious food, a beggar sitting at the door to the dining hall felt a great rejoicing that the king was able to make such excellent offerings to the Sangha. After the meal, it was the custom of the Buddha to de dedicate the merit or positive potential resulting from the offering. Now, usually, the dedication of merit went to the provider of the offering, but in this instance, the Buddha dedicated the merit to the beggar. The king was surprised and a little disappointed and asked the Buddha why he didn't get the dedication. The Buddha said that while the king had provided the meal, he'd also felt some pride in what he'd done and had some expectation of a reward. Maybe he thought others would praise him, or he coveted the positive potential created by the offering. However, the beggar's rejoicing had been pure and without any notion of gain for himself, and so the positive potential he generated was greater than the king's. 
So building merit is not only a matter of making offerings to higher and lower fields of merit, but also what our mind is doing at the time. On the website studybuddhism.com, the great Buddhist scholar Dr. Alex Burson says that what we mean by the term merit is not quite the same as what the Sanskrit term punya conveys. He says, in Buddhism we often speak about the importance of building up merit. The word merit, however, is rather misleading. It has one meaning in English, and the German translation Verdienst has a slightly different connotation, and the original Sanskrit term punya and its Tibetan equivalent sonam mean something different from both of them. So in fact there's some confusion, because when we hear about it, we actually associate it with what the word means in our own language. Let me state a few definitions first. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word merit as a noun means the quality of being particularly good or worthy, especially so as to deserve praise or reward. As a verb, to merit means to deserve or be worthy of something, especially reward, punishment or attention, as in your hard work on the project merits a bonus. On a more trivial level, this word merit seems to imply that you score points for doing good things. And if you get enough points, let's say a hundred points, then you win a medal. This is a childish idea, something like the scout's merit badge, and is certainly not what we mean by punya in Buddhism. The German word verdienst and its verb form verdienen add even more confusion since they are used in connection with earnings and income that someone pays you. Alex Burson continues, I prefer to translate the concept from Sanskrit or Tibetan as positive potentials or positive force, because this is something that that arises as a result of acting constructively and which then ripens into happiness. Of course, we will look into the meaning of this a little more deeply, because there are three terms here that are quite technical and specific. What do we mean by acting constructively? What do we mean by happiness? What is this process of ripening? And what is the relationship between acting constructively and being happy? For example, I might try to do some nice things, but I might not be very happy as as a result. So what's going on here? First, I think we need to examine the ideas of merit and verdienst. What do they mean in relation to happiness? Do they imply that we need to earn happiness or that we deserve happiness? To earn means that you work at a job and then you're paid, so you have earned something. Similarly, we work at being good and then we earn our happiness. Is that what this is about? Or does it mean that we deserve happiness? I have a right to be happy. I paid my money and now I have the right to get a good product. If I don't get that good product, I've been cheated. And these are the serious questions regarding these translation terms, since obviously merit cannot mean getting points and winning a contest. Let's look at some basic questions that I would like you to think about and then we can discuss. Dr. Burson also asks if we are entitled to a fair deal in life, a decent job and home, good food and so on. Are we entitled to be happy? Some people feel that they're not entitled to happiness. Why? This concept of entitlement 
conveys what the Germans mean by Verdinian. We've been given the right to these things by someone or naturally. And this leads Dr. Burson to the question of whether we are accountable for our actions. If we have the right to be happy, then we do not have to do anything, he says. It follows that a murderer has a right to be happy. Somebody who cheats or robs from the store has the right to do that because he wants to be happy. Does he really have the right to do that? The word right implies that someone gave us the right to be happy or have a good living, but entitlement implies that we have it without anyone giving it to us. A quality that we have is that we are programmed by nature to be happy, he says. Is a baby born in a war zone entitled to a peaceful home and to grow up in a peaceful environment simply by virtue of being a baby, he asks, and follows that up with, if we assume that an outside power gives us that right, let us say either God or the laws made by the society, then there are complications. Can that right be taken away from us? If we are entitled to this just by our very natures, then what does this imply? Is a war criminal still entitled to be happy? What about the environment? You say that all forms of life are entitled to be happy and to be treated well. So my question is, what about inanimate things like the air or the ocean? Is the ocean entitled to be kept clean? Is the air entitled to be kept clean? Where does the entitlement come from? What Buddhism says is that as part of our Buddha natures, we have some positive potential. The classical expression for it is that as part of our Buddha natures, we have a collection of merit. Again, I find that terminology strange. Collection is, I think, the wrong word for this. I prefer the word network. We have a network of positive potentials. Everybody has some sort of network of them. It's very complex. If you think about it, we have the potential to be able to learn, the potential to be able to raise a family and love others. We have all sorts of positive potentials, potentials to do positive things. One of you said earlier that we all have the possibility to be happy. This is what this is talking about. We have the possibility, the potentials for that. As there are mutually interconnected potentials for so many different things, they form a network. As a result of this network of positive potentials, we could be happy. I have the potential to be able to make a living, to be able to love other people and raise a family and so on. And therefore, I have the potential to be happy. Now, everybody has a basic network like this. On that basis, we could say that we are entitled, that we have earned our happiness. But the concept involved in the words we use doesn't quite fit with the Buddhist idea, does it? Dr. Burson goes on to say, the whole idea of merit and Verdinian, which is to earn something or to be entitled to something, and by extension our Western concept of this, is very different from the Buddhist concept of karma, which is what this whole discussion is about, positive potential. It is very different. If we analyze our Western concept of having rights, earning things and deserving things, what lies behind it is a basic culturally defined notion that we have in the West. This notion is that the universe is just, that there is some sort of justice in the universe and that things should be fair. Now this is a strong concept. It should be fair. Why should it be fair? Because the universe is just. This is very much a Western idea. But it is not limited to the West. 
He says it is also in Chinese thinking, but not in the Tibetan or the Indian thinking. Our Western view stems from the biblical idea of God being just and fair, even if things don't appear that way, like a child dying very young. For non-religious people, society is supposed to be made fair through its lawmakers. He says for the Chinese, laws are not from God or society, but just part of the natural order of the universe. Now, whether we look at it in a personal way, as in the West, or in an impersonal way, as with Chinese society, still the issue is obedience, Dr. Burson says. Obey the laws, and things will go well, you will be happy. If you don't obey the laws, you're not going to be happy. When we look at the Indian and Tibetan traditions of Buddhism, we tend to bring in our Western concepts, and this creates confusion, because we have these words merit and verdinst for punya. They both imply something you earned. If I act in a certain constructive way, the universe should be fair and I should be happy. There should be justice. He points out that in the West we talk about the laws of karma, but laws didn't come into the original expression. So what is karma actually talking about, he asks. First of all, karma is talking about what is the result of acting constructively and what is the result of acting destructively. It is talking about behavioral cause and effect. We do use expressions like laws of physics. These are physical things. There is no justice involved with objects following the laws of physics. Even among the Chinese, where laws are just part of the universe, the, the idea of justice is still there. Here in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, however, we are talking about a system that makes sense, but is not based on justice or fairness. It is just what it is. Constructive here means acting in a way that from the point of view of motivation is free from attachment. I want to be happy. I'm doing this in order to become happy. Free of anger, free of na naivety and so on. In our minds the motivation is I don't want to hurt somebody else and so on. I want to help others. Could also be there. But it is not the most important defining characteristic. If you want to help somebody, that's a bonus, an addition. The fundamental motivation is that it is free of acting out of desire or anger or naivety. Consider the mother who feels, I'm going to treat my children nicely because I want them to respect me, love me, take care of me when I'm old, serve me and so on. In such a case, she may be trying to be nice to her children, but her motivation is attachment. And we're not going to get much happiness out of that attitude. When we talk about the result of acting constructively, this is actually quite complicated. Motivation alone is not enough. We need a combination of a motivation, an action, and its immediate outcome. The motivation may be positive, but as when you make a nice meal and your guest chokes on a bone or breaks his tooth on it, it's a complex thing. However, the motivation is most important. As a result of acting constructively, we build up merit. But what, Dr. Burson asks, does build up mean? Positive potential, so-called merit, he says, is the potential for happiness to arise. To build up is not as though we are collecting points. It's not as though we have earned it either, like building up evidence in a legal case, so that, as a result, you're going to be released. It's not like that. A more helpful way to conceptualize it, I think, is that we strengthen the network of our positive potentials. 
because we have a basic network that is part of our Buddha nature, we are strengthening it so that it can function better. I see this more like an electronic system with lots of tubes and so on, and you strengthen it so that the electricity will flow through it much more strongly. He then asks what ripening into happiness means and stresses we need to understand the, the term ripen. First of all, it means what we, what we experience from our actions, not what others experience. We might cook a great meal for our friends, but they hate it. Our constructive action will not necessarily mean others get happiness. Nor is it related to your experience while doing the action or directly after the action. We have a mental continuum, Dr. Burson says. There is continuity to our experience. It's not as though there is something solid that is running along, but there is a continuity of our experience from moment to moment, a stream of moments of experience that follow one after the next throughout our life and continues from one life to another. In each moment, the whole network of all our potentials is present and can affect what is going to happen in the next moment. We also have to bear in mind that as well as the network of positive potentials, we have a network of negative potentials. Because of our confusion about reality, we have many destructive ways. We also have negative potentials, negative potential to be sarcastic, to be cruel, to lie sometimes, and more strongly, negative potential to be unhappy. All of these are also like a network of potentials supporting each other in many different combinations. When we talk about these potentials ripening, one of the ways that they ripen is into our preferences. I like to be with this type of person. I don't like to be with that type of person. I like to express my feelings very strongly. All these things that we like and dislike, the combination of which we generally call our personality. What happens is on the basis of that, this is what ripens. Our personality, our likes and dislikes, and depending on circumstances, various impulses will come up. I like to walk in dark streets. The impulse comes, I'm going to walk in a dark street, and as a result of that, I get robbed. This is one level of what we talk about when we say karma ripens. Another aspect of it is that it will ripen in I am happy, I feel good, or I don't feel good, which could be in any circumstances actually. Some people are very rich and have many things, and yet they are not happy at all. Others have nothing, but they are happy. And this comes from basic personality traits. I think we can understand this more easily from a Western point of view. All of these things are really how happiness comes about. However, we are not always happy with someone we like. What is very important to understand here is that this whole system of ripening into happy and unhappy, this whole system of positive and negative potentials, is a non-linear system. It is not that you act in a certain way and then immediately you are going to be happy and you're always going to be happy and everything follows in a straight line. It doesn't work like that. It's not linear. Rather, it's much more what we call a chaotic pattern. It's chaos. Sometimes we're not happy with this person. Sometimes we are happy with the same person. So it's not linear. It is chaotic in a sense, but this is understandable because of the complexity of what makes up the whole network of our positive potentials, and what makes up the ne network of our negative potentials. It's very complex. We will have to leave the argument there today and continue next time, for now our time is up. I hope you've benefited from the program 
and we'll tune in again next week. Please dedicate as usual to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.